you would turn to Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. If you have an outline, you will notice that we're going to focus on verse 32 this morning. I did a lot of debate within myself whether to do this, <laughs> but I think it is important. couple things before we read the text. I do want to make uh, some remarks about concerning this uh, message that is before you this morning. I would really encourage you, if you have not been attending the adult Sunday school class, I would really encourage you to listen the December 31st, January 7th class, and even this morning by Scott Hunter. It is absolutely wonderful material in relationship to what we are going to be talking about this morning. As a matter of fact, in many ways, the December 31st, when I was not here, <laughs> I've listened to the Sunday school class this week, um, it really dovetails the message. The second aspect that I want to accent is this, in terms of the message this morning. It's very important that we understand what we believe and why we believe it, especially in terms of apologetics, which is defending Christianity, or in evangelism. The text that is going to be focused on this morning, verse 32, is a very popular text in criticizing the deity of Christ, to criticize Christianity as the true religion. We want our people, I want all from adults to the young people in this congregation. I want you all to be thinking about that and thinking about what you believe and why you believe it in relationship. There is quite a bit of material at the end of your outline uh, concerning this position, our position on who Jesus Christ really is. And so I recommend that you look at that material and think about that. I know there's some references of books that you may not have, but for those who have it, have those works, there are references for you. You don't have to go out and buy them. <laughs> All right? So let us carefully listen to the word of God. Mark 13, starting in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or in the midday, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. 
And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we are dealing with a difficult text that has addressed the church throughout the ages. We ask, O oh Lord, that your spirit would be upon us this morning, for we do not have comprehensive knowledge of these things. We only know what we know as humans, and our knowledge is finite, but your word has been given to us, and we need to always understand how to understand you in your word as you have revealed to us. We ask, O oh Lord, your blessing upon our hearts and establish our hearts in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. If you would attend a secular college or university and took a course entitled History of Religions, it is very likely that the professor will state that the birth of Christianity as a formal religion did not occur until 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. Many, a high school student that I taught who went to secular universities came back and told me that's exactly what their professor said. Also, it is most likely that that professor teaching such a course will be the so-called will be a so-called expert on world religions. For example, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, just to name a few. The professor may also make the claim that there is truth in every religion and that it is best to blend the positives from each religion into your own life. However, more often than not, in such a setting, it is Christianity that receives the most opposition, especially if it is understood that the word of God states that there is one person between God and man by which fallen humans can be saved, his name Jesus Christ. That's repugnant to any person who is advocating the history of religions. Now what is the point for those who believe that Christianity is not born as a formal religion until 325 in terms of the Council of Nicaea? If you recall from reciting the creed, the deity of Christ, Christ is God, is clearly accented and underlined in the creed. You know the words. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not be made 
being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. The point that the critics of Christianity make about the Nicene Creed being the birth of Christianity often takes the following narrative. First, they view, they follow the liberal and critical attacks from the Enlightenment, the European Enlightenment, upon the New Testament, which held the claim that Christ, being God, was injected in the early church, that Christ never really claimed to be God. On this point, the liberal critics would have to prove that the New Testament is a complete fabrication. It is all made up. No one, none of these brilliant figures in the Enlightenment has ever been able to prove that point. Although because of fallen minds, there are many people who believe such a speculation. The person I did my PhD dissertation on, Rudolf Boltmann, maintained that the whole Bible is a mythology. Second, their narrative continues. If you read the early church fathers, there are various positions on whether Christ is God or not. The point, there, are, there is no consensus as to the identity of Christ in the early church. And thus Christ's identity is in a confused state until the council that is held at Nicaea in 325. Although it is true that because once again of fallen minds, Christ's identity in the early church have many different understandings, or should we say misunderstandings. We must not dismiss that there is also a clear line of early church fathers who know the true identity of Jesus Christ from the apostles to the words of our Lord himself, as is recorded in the Gospels. So what was the issue? Why was the council held at Nicaea? The converted and now Christian emperor Constantine called, the church, called a church council to resolve a debate over the identity of Christ's person. At this time, the position by a man named Arius, who had many followers, his position was extremely popular in the church, known as the Arians. Are there Arians today? Yes, the Jehovah Witnesses. As a matter of fact, they are proud of it. They even mention, they even say in their literature that they are Arians. The Arians believed that Christ was not co-eternal with the Father. The Christ was created sometime in the realm of eternity before coming to earth by virtue of the virgin birth. For the Arians, begotten means created, it means made. Hence, they had a succinct motto which described the relationship between the Father and the Son. There was, when he was not, 
I used to tell my students in high school, if anybody comes up to you and says there was when he was not, you know he's a heretic. <laughs> what does that mean? What does that phrase mean? It means that the Father always has existed before the Son came into existence sometime in the realm of eternity. Furthermore, although Christ was a creature, they admitted that he was a perfect creature who, however, was able to sin. One of the interesting aspects of the Arians was that they could not dismiss, they could not turn a blind eye to the various places that the Bible, especially where the New Testament records, records that Christ is in fact God or the Son of God. They admitted that that appears in the Bible. So what was their understanding of such terms and passages in the New Testament? The Arians claimed that these titles attributed to Christ as God and Son of God were merely pleasant titles, listen, of courtesy of courtesy to Jesus because of his unique personhood on earth. Now with these highlights about the Arian heresy before you, do you see what and why you are confessing these words in the creed? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Christ is the one covenant person as one covenant person, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. He is not a Son of God by virtue of a title of courtesy. Because of the way that he lived on earth. He is the only begotten Son of God of the Father before all worlds. The creed goes on, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Do you got it? Do you got it yet? <laughs> he is God of God. He is the light of the world. And if you are still missing it, <laughs> he is very God of very God. There is no mistake. The Lord Jesus Christ is God, just like the Father is God. Begotten, not made. Therefore, he is not created or made at some point in the realm of eternity. Being of one substance with the Father. Still confused? Still confused? Don't be. He is of the same substance an essence as the Father, which means he is God. By whom all things were created. Like the Father, he is the creator of all things. He is not created. Rather, he is the creator. Oh, at this time in history, the Lord rose up a young, brilliant man who was strongly committed to the Bible and what the scriptures teaches and records concerning the truth of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
his identity as the second person of the Trinity, and the gospel that is centered in Jesus Christ. His name was Athanasius. Athanasius emerged amid great opposition to articulate what the scripture taught about the person of Christ. Athanasius was not inventing a new understanding of the person of Christ. Christ's person was clearly revealed from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. The apostles and those who were ordained under the ministries presented throughout Asia Minor. The true, they all provided the true understanding of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, begotten, not made. This true understanding of Christ continued to be taught as the church expanded beyond the apostolic church until the day when the Nicene Council was held. But as we said earlier, many misunderstandings appeared at this time and thus, as often is the case, the issue came to a head with the Arians with the Arians which forced the church to really focus her study upon the biblical text and what the text actually teaches about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What emerged was the Holy Spirit. Let us underline that. But the Holy Spirit leading the church into all truth as promised by our Messiah Christ. The Nicene Creed provided the clear biblical understanding that begotten means that Christ is the same substance or essence as the Father. With respect to the Father and the Son, they are two persons who are equally one God. Well, <laughs> you may be thinking at this point, Pastor Bill, what does this have to do with Mark 13, 32? <laughs> well, Mark 13, 32 is one of the most used texts by those critical of Christianity and the deity of Christ in the Gospels. The point is made by Christ himself, as we saw in the text, as we read, that he does not know the day of those, these things and his second coming. Well, if Christ is God and God knows all things, then how is it possible that he does not know the day that these things will occur? If Christ does not know the day their thinking is simply this, what they will place before you, then he must not be God. Very logical. The professor teaching the history of religions course and taking the position that Christianity does not declare that Christ is God until 325 AD will hold this position about Mark 13.32. Moreover, modern liberal critics of Christianity and the person of Christ will use this verse in their support as well. 
Yes, those who know this verse will love to challenge and try to underline your faith and commitment to the true Christ taught in the Bible. But to use this verse to attack Christ as being God can also be found in the early churches, early centuries, excuse me, of the churches. Specifically, the Arians used this verse to support their heretical teaching about Christ. They knew about this verse. Athanasius, after the Nicene Creed in 325, continued to write exclusively against the heresy of the Arians and addressed how Mark 1332 should be understood against the Arians. Athanasius' defense is significant. It's very significant because his position is found in such reform figures as Calvin, Turretin, Bavinck, and Voss, to name a few. Those are the few that I researched. <laughs> Let me begin with the position that Athanasius set in place and endorsed in the history of true Orthodox Christianity. First, Athanasius claimed that the Arians were really, the word that he uses constantly is ignorant. Were really ignorant of understanding the one person of Christ and his two natures. That is his human and divine natures. When Christ says that the son does not know the day or that hour, of these things are going to take place, but only the Father does. Christ is referencing his human nature. That's the crucial point. Christ is emphasizing, his referencing his human nature. His human nature, which is not divine, does not know all things, including everything in the future. His human nature does not know when these things will take place, referencing 29 and 30 of chapter 13. On this point, Calvin, Turretin, Bavinck, and Voss line up right with Athanasius on Mark 13:32. Second, Corresponding with this first point, Christ's reference to his human nature in 1332 can be seen in the flow of the verse. First, those who do not know the day or the hour have a finite reference. No one knows. Jesus there is referencing humanity in general. Then he moves on. Not even the angels in heaven who are finite and created beings. Nor the Son, referencing in this context the Son of Man, verse 26, his human nature. But, 
but only the Father, who is only divine, knows the day. You can see, as commentators point out, there's an elevated process in the verse. Humans, angels, son of man, as only his human, referencing his human nature, then but the Father alone. Third, with respect to the revelation of the Holy Spirit upon Mark and his gospel, many interpreters of Mark's gospel blend a key idea in the narrative of Mark's gospel into this particular statement by Christ here in 1332. The key idea is Mark's accent by Christ throughout the gospel to keep some of his particular statements and activities a secret. That's a huge theme in Mark's gospel, a secret. Let me give you just a quick ex reminder of a few examples. In 3.12, after casting out unclean spirits, the spirits call him the son of God. Then Jesus strictly tells them not to make him known. In 5.43, after Jesus resurrects Jairus' daughter, he strictly told them that no one know this. In 8.30, after Peter's confessed that Jesus is the Christ, he strictly told the disciples not to tell anyone. These references of secrecy are about Christ's identity and activity in certain situations. Well, the idea of secrecy is now tied to his human nature in Mark 13.32 with respect to when these things are going to take place, which lies beyond his death, resurrection, and his ascension. As you may recall in Mark's gospel, the revelation of Christ being the Son of Man is in fulfillment to the Daniel 7 chapter relating to the coming in judgment. So the idea here is this, that in 1332, Christ as the Son of Man, with respect to his human nature, is connecting the exact day and hour of his judgment to his own position of secrecy, which he remained, which he maintained during his entire ministry. One last point. As finite creatures, <laughs> we acknowledge that it is a complete mystery to us how the human and the divine natures exist and function in one person of Jesus Christ. This is good. This is good. We are reminded, you see, in this situation by this mystery that God, only God is God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We are finite. And as those who 
love our God, our triune God. We love our humility, do we not, in terms of who God truly is. Hence, we think of the two natures of Christ in one person. And we are thankful that our confessional standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, is clearly worded and explaining Christ's natures in chapter 8 of the Confession within the bounds of Holy Scripture. The Confession says that Christ took upon man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof without sin, which in our case, his human nature had limited knowledge when these things are to take place, which will come in 70 AD and also the situation of his second coming. But we also confess in the words of, of the confession, in compliance to the teachings about Christ's person in scripture, that he has two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion. That is, one nature is not converted into another nature. For example, human is converted into the divine so that there is no human nature. The confession goes on. Composition. The human nature is not composed of the divine nature or the divine nature composed of the human nature. Or confusion, the confession says. The human nature or the divine nature being mixed into each other or just one nature. Now with this teaching placed before us, let us hear from the great 17th century Reformed theologian Francis Turretin, who brings clarity as to how we should view Christ as one person with two natures in precise relationship to Mark 1332. There's a small section in his institutions where he specifically addresses this verse. Turretin states that we must not look at Christ's teaching here as being to Christ, to Christ. Rather, Christ is two natures in one person. Christ's two natures are joined together in one person as they retain their properties without being mixed or confused. What Turretin says about Mark 13.32 corresponds with exactly what Elder Scott Hunter stated about Christ in his Sunday school class on January 7th. I encourage you to listen to that if you have not. But going back to Turretin, paraphrasing Turretin, he says that although the Son of Man did not know the day of judgment, the Son of God as Logos, the divine word of God, was not, was not ignorant of the day of judgment. 
In fact, this is a key here to bring this together. In fact, Turretin points out that Christ had predetermined with the Father before the foundation of the world when that day would be. You're asking, give me the proof text. Give me the proof text that brings this together. The proof text that Turretin uses is Acts 17, verse 31. When Paul references God in that verse, God in that verse, for Paul, that would mean, that would mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit going on with the verse itself has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance to all by rising him from the dead. That man, of course, is Christ Jesus, is the reference there. So we can summarize what Christ is stating in 1332 in the following manner. Christ knew the day when these things would take place when he was speaking to his four disciples. But he decided to keep his theme of secrecy on this occasion and thus to speak only with his human nature so that the day when these things occur will only be revealed to humanity when the events actually occur in history. That's why, as we'll see next week, in terms of the rest of the text, Christ is telling the disciples and the church in history, we must be on our guard. We must be awake. He's not telling us that exact day. He's returning, or even in this case, including the 70 AD. A congregation, I mentioned a little bit of this in last week's Sunday school, but I want to address the whole congregation in this regard. This is not a very easy thing to try to comprehend. Even the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, around 2008 in a Presbyterian which I was in, had a very serious case of licensing a candidate for the ministry of the church in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. The candidate could not affirm would not affirm that Jesus Christ is begotten of the Father. I'll never forget, never forget that one minister in the presbytery, as the debate went on and on whether to pass this person for the ministry, one person got up and finally, in tears, literally, 
in tears, he pleaded to the presbytery, this is about the Trinity. This is about the Trinity. This is about Jesus Christ. The person was not licensed. But the person returned at the next presbytery saying that he had altered his position. When examined on the floor, it was very evident he had not altered his position. Believe it or not, ministers and elders passed this gentleman to be licensed as a past to preach in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He passed by a majority of the vote, but the problem was he had to have two-thirds of that vote. He did not get it, and therefore he was defeated and was not licensed. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church tries to proclaim very seriously how serious we are about the true teachings that are in the scriptures. Even men who pastor churches seem to be confused seem to be confused. Please, from the oldest to the youngest to your children, make sure you are instructing them concerning who the Lord Jesus Christ truly is. There's no salvation without him, as we will see in this evening's message. There is no salvation without him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us, that you sent him into the world, taking on our flesh. Yes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son of God. We thank thee so much that thy spirit has come upon us and be with us in terms of our covenant relationship with thee and with respect to our church and thy people from the oldest to the youngest, that we would know the true identity of Christ, that we would love him, believe in him, and trust in him all the days of our life. In Christ's name. Amen.